The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Hi, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, um, I'm the pastor here at uh, Christ Pres Music Row, and i um, so glad to have Joy up here. Actually, before I um, planted this church uh, about, oh gosh, seven uh, years ago and some change, uh, I did a ministry similar at Vanderbilt uh, with ministry called RUF, uh, Reformed University Fellowship at uh, Vandy, and I did that for 10 years. And so I, I love that ministry, um, and many of you have been a part of that ministry at other campuses. That lunch today, I know you heard the words only free and chewies, but uh, that's for anybody who uh, not only goes to Belmont, uh, but uh, also goes to Vanderbilt. That is not for people who went to Belmont and Vanderbilt in this campus. So uh, we would love to have you students come with us and uh, get to know you better. Um, <clears throat> I was actually sitting with a former campus minister in um, having lunch, oh gosh, a number of months ago in Green Hills. And, um, and if you've been in Green Hills area of Nashville, it's pretty trafficy. probably used to that. And uh, as we began our lunch, you know, somebody was walking, um, we were eating outside and, uh, and this little patio, and someone was walking by, and there was also a little, a lot of traffic with cars and people, and all of a sudden we heard a bunch of honking turn around, and this person's yelling at this car, and this car's honking, and you know, and we're like, oh gosh, and it was super loud, and it went on. Well, we start eating, and, and all of a sudden again we hear this honking, and different cars pulling up, eh, eh, I mean, just like going which way, trying to turn, just, I mean, we're like, man, what is the deal today? And then we start eating again, and a third time, <laughs> uh, we hear honking and yelling, and it's somebody across the street, and cars, like, down the way, and we're like, good night, what is happening? And I know that that's not an abnormal thing. You think, if, if you're in a car, it stirs up, you know, anger. But it did make us think, um, man, how many times do you see that regularly in three times in an occurrence and think, man, what, what is going on right now? Uh, that is not an abnormal thing. I was in the post office. I mentioned this in, during um, our Christmas Eve service. I was in the post office getting stamps, and people were standing, literally, this is what it was about, too close to one another, got in a huge fight in the line in the post office, which I know many of you are like, yeah, go on postal. Um, but... They, they're getting mad about getting Christmas stamps and start yelling. Someone at the front's like, hey, y'all, it's Christmas. Come on. And we're like, oh, my gosh, what is happening? 
But aren't we living in, in, don't you feel it? I know you've experienced it. There is more anger now than there has been. Even the articles that were written about 2018, 19, and even 20 that were before COVID hit considered those the, the um, years of outrage. If it has only been heightened, COVID has only drawn out more of who we are and has made it more. And coming back into society, I mean, it's, it's documented we have actually fewer friends, and that be it close friends that we do, and actually have more isolation and even enemies than we did before. Outrage and anger is all through. There's a thing, uh, maybe you've heard of it, uh, it's called motive attribution asymmetry. It's uh, a phrase that's usually connected to political and social um, kind of ideology, but it, it actually is stating that, that many people come from a position of, as it says, motive attribution asymmetry, asymmetrical, that they believe their position is only out of love and being correct, and that whomever is on the other side of things is only out of evil and wrong. And that that motive attribution asymmetry has actually grown in us. If you can't tell, we're reading and speaking about something uh, that really is dealing with us. And from time to time, we go through topical series. Usually, we, in our church, we look at a specific book or uh, books of the Bible and walk through them. We will be looking at the, the book of Micah from the Old Testament in a couple weeks. But right now, right after Christmas, we're taking just a, a brief moment to talk topically um, about things that are really going on in our culture. And, and today we're going to look at what it talks about outrage. You know, it's interesting, even MLK Weekend, Dr. Martin Luther King Weekend, I'm speaking, and you may have seen the plaque out front. You may or may not know this, but I'm actually speaking from the position where Dr. King actually spoke uh, years ago when he gave his Nashville lectures. Uh, and I have the honor of doing that every week from this very spot. And the reason that he actually came over here and spoke here. He was supposed to speak at Vanderbilt. And the security and outrage was such an issue that Scarrett Bennett and the facility here, who is not, as some of you may think, Vanderbilt owns it, they don't, separate from them said, hey, come speak here. And he did. And so thus history was made. But what he spoke about then, as we know now, is not just that not much has changed. Racial, political, social rage that has only been fueled. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? This passage is one that's drawn out of a longer sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you are unfamiliar with the New Testament, it, it begins that way with these four Gospels, these narrative accounts. And in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is Jesus giving a sermon and what he's doing in that sermon is unpacking a lot of things. And you heard it here. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and he does this over and over. He's layering. He's giving a sermon of his authority of what, it, what does it really mean to be a follower of the Lord. And we're going to look at that together. But this came at a time when Israel specifically was dominated by the superpower of Rome. There was outrage religiously, and you can read the Gospels and see that it's all through it. 
It was fueled by a number of things. Even the, the disciples that followed Jesus thought, Jesus, are you, this sermon's awesome. Are you our guy who's gonna bring us over our enemies? Are we gonna finally triumph over those who hate us and that we hate? And Jesus comes up with this. You've heard it said this, but I said you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What in the world? How do we do that? What does that look like? We're going to look at this in three ways. What Jesus unpacks for us and how this addresses the character of God, our kindness, and the quality. So character, kindness, and quality of what it means to live this out. You know, like many places in in the Sermon on the Mount, if you read Matthew 5 through 7, it begins this way, that you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's this, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. And what Jesus is doing in that is really saying, hey, this is something you've known. Now, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you read through there, some of those are from the Ten Commandments. He's like actually literally drawing from one of the commandments. This one, however, if you look, it's not found anywhere specifically in the Ten Commandments or actually in the whole of the Old Testament. But it's a phrase that was developed by the, old, the uh, Pharisaic tradition that was layered from how they were to love their enemy and hate, I mean, love their neighbor and hate their enemy. And neighbor became those who were within the Israelite people and community, those who were willing to be a part of that or were already a part of that. And anyone outside of that was to be hated. And this became the phrase. And so when Jesus says, now you've heard this, but I say to you, he's drawing this out. He's saying, you, this is what everyone has been telling you religiously. Now, notice, he's not saying this is just the cultural norm, which is of our heart. He's saying this is also what's been layered and in, in, in bolstering through religious thought and tradition what you already do. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. How easy is that? <laughs> but the question should immediately come, who are our enemies? Who are our enemies? Who are the ones that you hate? Now, I don't know if when this passage came up that immediately in your mind you're like, oh, great. I have to think about this person or these people that maybe I have a hard time with. But you maybe have not just one person, but see a group of people or some people as your enemy, even if they wouldn't be termed your enemy, there's not been some sort of uh, actual interaction, but you just don't like where they sit or what they say or what they represent. But that's still what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, where do you define enemy? And Jesus begins by saying this, but I said, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. Here's what's brilliant about what Jesus does. He draws out God's character in this. For all the traditions and all the ways that the people in the past said, oh, this is what God tells us to do. He's saying, "Mm, what does God actually do? I can't remember who it was that said this, but um, a a great thinker and and writer 
said, you know that you may be worshiping a false god if God hates all the people that you do. This is where they're coming from. And he draws out the character of God to say, wait, 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 wait. What does God do to those? And he doesn't misdefine or dismantle or push away that there's evil and righteousness, right? But he says, what is God, how does God treat that? He causes the sun to rise and the rain to come upon both. And this is what we would talk about in our circles maybe called common grace. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. But there's a thing called common grace. There's a guy who wrote a great article, uh, John Kaufman, who wrote the, called The Problem of Good. It's great, be a great article to read if you ever want to unpack this. But what common grace is, is first, it's not comic grace, he says, that we're good enough to save ourselves. Notice, evil does exist. It's not relativism. Jesus isn't saying, you should save yourself here. Anybody can do it. It's not saying everybody's saved. It's saying the sun and rain fall on both the good and, and evil. He also says it's not cosmic waste, that goodness outside of salvation is an illusion. And I think that's what sometimes happens is, oh, there's nobody good. Now, yes, the Bible talks about we're all sinful, but good still does exist. And this is what, God, what Jesus is saying. He still practically brings the sun and rain upon those who are, would be deemed evil and good. But he also says common grace is this, that there's goodness outside of just merely God's salvation that is a gift to everyone. And this allows us to understand that God works more fully than just one slice of that, that he doesn't de dehumanize, that he cares for his creation. And this is where we can go from one, from one pole to the other. As, as beautifully put, Bono and U2 put in City of Blinding Lights, a great song. He said, blessings not just for the one, ones who kneel, luckily. That the blessings we see and that are given aren't just because we may think we're good. And that puts us in a community of thinking, hey, we're good. We receive because we're good. And they're bad. We put ourselves on a good hook and them on a bad hook. And we limit that on people. What makes someone their enemy? Listen to what Jesus says. He says, the command that Jesus is saying, he said, heard, and he takes it and he add, they added enemy. But he says, this is limited on loving people is what this is doing. What this commandment did is it was a limit on loving those around us. And the marker of being a son or follower or characteristic of who, who we are following God had to be more than just following this narrow road. Notice what it says. It says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. The Pharisees touted all the time whose sons they were. In fact, that was a constant argument that Jesus had with the religious leaders. They were constantly saying, well, we're sons of Abraham. We're sons of Moses. We're sons of the law. We follow this. But what he's saying is, no, no, no. It's not about you being a son of that. If you, any of us could say that. But it's being a son of our Father in heaven. And then here's what it is. It's keeping those people... And, and, and who we follow, 
really shows the character and quality of who we are. If we are sons of God, it should actually teach us to say, how does God love? What does God love? What does God hate? But what we've done is taken it and just as they did is narrow that into the community specific of who are the people that I can love and I can hate. See, this, this commandment makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable and it should make you very uncomfortable. Because it's not just saying tolerate. It's not just saying you should be okay with them. But that you should love them. That you should care for them. Even those who don't care, it says, the tax collectors and others, even the Gentiles who were outside of the community. Notice he, the people he brings up are the people who are labeled the enemies. Even they treat people the same way you do. They love the people that love them. So whose children are we showing? I always loved it when Megan, my wife, and I would go, she used to be a teacher many moons ago, and I remember living in Jackson, Mississippi, and she was a teacher there at a certain school, and I would go visit her classroom from time to time just to bring her, you know, lunch or just say hey, and every now and then I got to hang out with the students, and certain things just pop out, and you hear phrases and, and things, and whether it was about a sport or it was about a, 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 an opinion about something, the kids always said it, and what are they, where are they getting it from? Their parents. I remember it was Iron Bowl uh, weekend, right? Uh, Egg Bowl weekend, sorry. Mixed, 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 yeah, different. Yeah, you're like, wait a minute. Egg Bowl weekend, Mississippi State, Ole Miss. And uh, my wife was like, okay, who, who are y'all cheering for? Ole Miss State! Southern Miss, there are a couple of those, you know. <laughs> but you could always tell who, who was following whom. Where did they get their opinions? Where did they get their phrases? I hear it all the time from my own children at school. They come home and say something really strongly. I'm like, mm, where did you hear that? The character and quality, it emanates. Where does it come from? So that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. There's less of a reward here in what this is saying. And, and it sounds like it at first when you read this. It says, so that you may be. But it's actually saying this is an identification with. So that you may be identified with. And that we're leveled, that no one is good. See, again, let's, let's go back to this. We initially can look at good and evil and those who are evil by putting ourselves in a good spot. At least I'm not. At least I didn't. And we justify our positioning. But what about being humbled by who we really are before God? See, the rain and the sun don't shine on us because you deserve it or because you're good. It's because he is God. And until we get our hearts in that position, we will not understand it. Years ago in the 60s, uh, long after World War II was over, during the Nuremberg trials, there was... One in particular was a man named Adolf Eichmann who was being sought out um, to be captured. He was one of the worst perpetrators of the Holocaust. 
was hiding out in South America and was finally captured, brought in. He was on trial, and a man named Yehiel Dunur was to give testimony against him. And as it's seen in the court setting, as Yehiel Dunur is walking in, one of the survivors, to give his witness account against Adolf Eichmann, he collapsed on the floor. And as he was interviewed later uh, on 60 Minutes, uh, he was asked, what, what was it? And they replayed it, of course, and said, hey, show us what, what's going on. What, what's happening here? I mean, was this the atrocities coming back? Is it, is it seeing the perpetrator? And, and what Yehiel Dunur was said was so profound that it threw off uh, not only the interviewer but the rest of the show. He said, what was going on? He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw him and that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. And when the interviewer saw this and began to ask him, wow, maybe we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. It was a humility that Yehiel Dunur tried on. Not that the evil was dismissed. Not that the atrocities that were against him or anyone else were thrown out and seen as trite. But he saw himself as leveled. And until we actually take that on and what that character means, we will live in a posture of outrage. We will live as children of outrage rather than children of our Heavenly Father. And we will seek our own legal demands. And we will see ourselves as good and everyone else as bad. And that asymmetry that is so profound right now will continue to grow. What is the church to be about? It is to be about people whose characters transform and that we are kind. That we are kind. The word hesed for grace. It's not just a love that's emotional. I think it's interesting that Jesus says this, but I say to you, this is what he says different, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in verse 46, he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What is he saying? He's saying there's a reality of love. It's not a more kindness in 2023. We can't do it. But it has to be incarnational and relational. It has to be deeper than us behavioral change. It cannot be something that we look at and say, I'm just going to try and, and overlook these offenses. That can't change you. It has to be taken up in a different way. It has to be met more than just with religiosity or behavior or legal change, but with incarnational change. I remember listening years ago to, <clears throat> it was really interesting, um, to uh, a podcast uh, uh, from This American Life. It was interesting that it was all about trolling, which trolling are those people who go on, uh, you know, be it a podcast or on a comment of some sort of, you know, thing online and literally just rail people. I mean, they just attack, attack, attack. Whether they find a small crack or something, they just want to hate that it's haters online. And this American Life 
program was specifically about this person on the show meeting one of their haters, their trollers, and pursuing them, doing the opposite. And actually finally bringing them on the show to say, why did you call me this? I mean, it's, it's rough. This, treat me this way, say these things in all tears. And with the person saying, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. But what was amazing was during the podcast, as she showed her, you know, asked the questions, why would you do this? Why would you want to say this? But leaned in relationally to this person, you begin to see them melt. You begin to see this, this troll, this person, and their hate being dismantled. And it was an amazing picture to listen, even to hear it and to to envision them in this radio studio talking face to face who have no relationship with one another. And yet she's leaning in to say, I'm going to lean into this hate and see where it goes. And not only did he apologize, but their relationship began there and, and the kindness that melted that moment. If there's one thing that that shows is there's a picture of a difference and it happens in those little moments. And we don't want to do that. I mean, how many of us want to call or go towards the people that have, we would consider our enemies? But isn't this why, whether it's a group of people, an ideology or something else, we only like to read the people that bolster our ideologies. We only like to pursue those that give. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? He says it perfectly because he knows us. He says, what do you get? Because if you love those who love you, isn't that what we're doing? It's easy to get the attaboys from people that love us and know us. It's easy to pursue people to say, hey, will you continue to love me? But what's more profound is when you love someone who doesn't, even as he says, anybody does that. Everybody does that. But what is it like to meet somebody who really doesn't dote on you, doesn't care for you? What is going to transform not only this city, but our culture in our relationships is if we as a church believe that it's not just, I'm gonna pursue my enemies, but I'm going to love them. Notice, the love that he says, let's talk about that for a second, it's directional and practical. Love isn't just emotional, it's not that. It's going towards them. Here's what I have a problem with, with a couple of bumper stickers that I see, and I, I understand them. One is tolerance and one is um, there's another one out there that's kind of like that. It's like essentially making room. And, and, and the reason I don't like those words, look, I worked at Vanderbilt as a chaplain. And if there's one thing that we didn't do in that office was just tolerate each other. And these weren't my enemies per se, but these weren't people that necessarily were on the same page as me. And here's the whole point is, The gospel, Jesus isn't saying, hey, tolerate. Make sure everybody feels good about themselves. Make sure that everybody knows that you're nice and that when you're talked about, they're like, that that man or woman, they are so good. They're just nice to everybody. You can't hate them. 
That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you press in, you love. Where hate exists, where outrage exists, you love. And Jesus doesn't dismiss evil. He doesn't dismiss those things. He doesn't get in there. But he says, look, there's a difference between disagreement and discord. We can disagree all day long. But you know what's happened? The outrage and disagreement have been connected. Do you think Jesus agreed with anyone he was talking to in this sermon? Nobody. And yet he brought this with great love and care and truth. What gets to the core of us is knowing that it isn't just about us taking on kindness. It's that we've been met with kindness. If there's somebody who knows this, this well, is, uh, there's a Croatian theologian and Christian, Miroslav Volf, who lived actually in atrocities years ago that are not unlike what's happening in Ukraine right now. Seeing his home, seeing people killed, seeing just complete discord. And he talks often about, what, how do I make sense of justice and love? This is what he says. Inscribed on the very heart of God's grace is the rule that we can be its recipients only if we do not resist being made into its agents. What happens to us must be done by us. We who have been embraced by the outstretched arms of the crucified God open our arms even for the enemies so that together we may rejoice in the eternal embrace of the triune God. You hear what he's saying? He's saying the only way you can actually do this is if you know that it's been done to you, not just by another human. And those are tastes of it, which is amazing. That's what we're to show. But by someone who actually didn't have any injustice that was incurred or towards them, and yet took it all. See, here's what's incredible about this table. This table is actually a table of outrage. It is a table of outrage. If you think about it, it is something we talk about body and blood. And you actually can't come to this table unless you know that God has actually walked into outrage. See, the remarkable thing, every religion talks about kindness. Only one has stepped into it to receive the outrage and become the focal point of it so that you may receive every bit of kindness. See, what transforms you isn't coming to this table hoping that you feel good or emotionally loved by God, but it's that you taste the fact that he took about every ounce of outrage that is towards you and towards me and didn't need to at all so that you may take every ounce of kindness and live out through it. Did you notice the very last verse in this passage? Did you hear what it says? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, does that sound encouraging? Go on. Great job, guys. It's been a good one. 2023, be perfect. You know what Jesus is saying? He is saying that. How in the world can you do that? How in the world? How can you be perfect unless someone took this on? 
so that you may know that when you leave this table, you're actually being made perfect. You can strive for this knowing that you're not struggling to try and make it, but you're free to struggle in it. You're free to know that every time you see or think about the person that hates you or you hate, and I know every single person in this room has that one. And if you say, I don't have enemies, you may not know yourself very well yet. Because we all do. And we gotta be honest. The outrage isn't out there and it's not the trolls online. It's coming from here. What is going to be the balm of outrage is people who know they've been touched deeply by the good news of the gospel. The kindness of the body and blood of your Savior, Jesus Christ, who said on the cross, what did he say on the cross? If you read in the gospels, when everyone there is staring up at him, many thinking, gosh, the one I followed is now being crucified. Others thinking he's getting what he deserved. And guess what he did? He looked at every single one of those people who were his first century enemies and his 21st century enemies. And you know what he said? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Isn't just any religious leader that can do that. It had to be God himself taking the injustice and the outrage so that we can live out the kindness and reality of the good news of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Because that's your kindness. And if you trust in him, friends, if you're here this morning and you're kind of like, that's great news, don't leave just thinking it's, it's just any other news. It's great news. And if you've never received him, never taken him in, and maybe you're kind of like, I don't know, you don't have to have all the things in line to know that this is the reality. This is Christ the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's stand together.